Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. On the face of it, young Chinese people seem extremely patriotic, supportive of the communist leadership. But there's more to it than that. They have a wider awareness about the world than their forebears did, and they see a lot they'd like to change and will. And working from home really ramps up a sense of solitude. It's pretty lonesome recording here in my closet. But loneliness at work was a problem even before the pandemic. We take a look at what might be done to combat it. But first... This week, the specter of Donald Trump's presidency will take center stage in Washington. The Senate will proceed to consideration of the article impeachment against Donald John Trump, the former president of the United States. Tomorrow, Mr. Trump will go on trial in the Senate for inciting the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, making him the first president to be tried for impeachment after leaving office. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. In many ways, this is a matter of Congress going through the motions. The likelihood of the Senate acquitting him, again, is a measure of just how much hold he still has over the Republican Party. He's the first president to be impeached twice, and it seems inevitable that he'll be the first to be exonerated twice. Well, Jason, this will probably be a shorter trial than his last one. That one, you remember, lasted three weeks, and it centered on whistleblower testimony, and it involved a network of diplomats in multiple countries. John Fasman is The Economist's U.S. digital editor. This trial centers on something that happened out in the open. Donald Trump riling up a bunch of his supporters at a televised public rally on January 6th, after which some of them invaded the Capitol. And I think, frankly, both sides know that not enough Republicans will vote to convict, so I'd be surprised if the trial lasts longer than a week or two. And I would think simply because there's so much less to explain, we sort of know what happened, I would expect a lot more emotive grandstanding from both sides. And what precisely is the charge here? What did the House end up impeaching him on? They approved just a single article of impeachment, and the charge was incitement of insurrection. And the article explains that for months leading up to January 6th, which was the day of the Capitol invasion, President Trump repeatedly and without any evidence told his supporters that the election was stolen from him and from them. And that by telling the crowd on that day, many of whom were armed and already angry, by telling them to fight like hell and be strong, he used language, and this is a direct quote, that in context encouraged and foreseeably resulted in lawless action in the Capitol. The House views him as singularly responsible for the violence of the Capitol. And it's important to note that even though the House is in the hands of Democrats, you still had 10 Republicans who voted for it. And that makes it, believe it or not, the most bipartisan impeachment vote in American history. And what's Mr. Trump's defense against that charge? 
Well, his lawyers are offering two main arguments in his defense. The first is that the proceeding itself is unconstitutional. And to my mind, this stems from a hyper-literal reading of the Constitution's impeachment sections. The other argument is that they deny he incited the attack with his speech. They deny he intended to disrupt the certification of the election. And that he was just engaging in the First Amendment-protected practice of expressing an opinion. Now, an earlier team of lawyers parted ways with Trump when he asked them to push the idea that the election was stolen. This team instead is saying insufficient evidence exists upon which a reasonable jurist could conclude that Donald Trump's belief that the election was stolen from him is true or false. And that is a very lawyerly and unfalsifiable statement. But on that question of of speaking out, I mean, last week, Mr. Trump's lawyers said he wouldn't be testifying in, in the trial. Why not? Why wouldn't he? Well, President Trump has nothing to gain from testifying. I mean, he knows... We all know that 17 Republicans are not going to break ranks. And I think in his eyes, his testimony would probably lend an air of legitimacy to a proceeding that he wants people to believe is illegitimate. Now, they could subpoena him, but that would require a Senate majority and it risks extending the trial. I guess they proceed without him. More broadly, though, what's your take on his wider defense strategy here? Well, let's take the First Amendment part first, because that's easier. There is all sorts of speech that the First Amendment protects that a president could say and would still constitute an impeachable offense. The president's words are not the same as the words of an ordinary citizen, right? If Donnie from Queens calls into a radio show to say that the election was stolen and people could march in the Capitol, that's one thing. But when President Donald J. Trump says it, with the full weight of his office behind him, that's another. And impeachment is a political act, remember, not a legal one. They're determining whether he violated his oath of office by impeding the peaceful transfer of presidential power for the first time in centuries. So I'm not surprised they're making this argument, but I don't really think it holds much weight. Now, one challenge Democrats will face is that there's a lot of pre-planning that went into the Capitol attack. People showed up prepared with weapons and flexible handcuffs. There's lots of chatter on social media. So that raises the question of whether the invasion would have happened without Trump's speech. And I'd expect his lawyers to press hard in that question. But another question from the start here has been whether or not it's constitutional to impeach a president after he's left office. First, it's really important to note that the House did not impeach Donald Trump after he left office. They impeached him on January 13th while he was still in office, a week before the inauguration. So when Republicans argue that it is unconstitutional to impeach an ex-president, they're engaging in a little argumentative sleight of hand. That's not what happened here. Now, the argument against it being constitutional is that the purpose of impeachment is to prevent an office holder from doing further damage so that once he's out of office, impeachment becomes effectively moot. Now, that's a minority view, and to hold it would basically permit a president to engage in all sorts of illegal acts in the waning days of his presidency. It would put a president above the law. And it's also at odds with history. In 1876, the Senate tried and acquitted a former cabinet secretary once he left office. Now, the question of whether this defense is substantive and whether it provides an adequate fig leaf for Republicans to justify their vote to acquit Donald Trump are two separate questions. But you don't reckon any weaknesses in the defense will have an impact on the outcome? No, of course not. President Trump will be acquitted. The Republican Party of today is structured around personal loyalty to Donald Trump. You would need 17 senators to cross party lines. I don't think you'll get more than six, and even that's a stretch. Now, the Senate has other options, right? It could vote to censure him. I'm not sure what that accomplishes, but it's possible. Some have mooted barring Trump from running again by using the 14th Amendment. This is a Civil War era amendment that bars anyone who swore an oath to the Constitution, as President Trump did when he was inaugurated, and then engages in an insurrection or rebellion against the same from holding office. But that's still, you know, way off in the future. And I think we all know that in this particular proceeding, President Trump will not be convicted. And that being the case, where does that leave the Republican Party? 
Well, it leaves them where they are, right? Organized around personal fealty to the Trump family, even though many wish it weren't so. It's useful to look at the actions of Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. These are two conservative senators, two of Donald Trump's most ardent congressional defenders, but they're also ambitious. They're also eyeing the White House. And they don't want Donald Trump to nurse a stab-in-the-back grievance back to the 24 nomination. They want to be the nominee. But they also don't want to get crosswise with Trump's base. So I think a lot of Republicans see expressing personal loyalty to Donald Trump as essential to their own political future. What about the bigger picture here, the timing of all this as Joe Biden is, is trying to push through his own agenda, his stimulus plan and so on? Well, the timing isn't great for the Biden administration, right? They have a lot of things they want to get accomplished and they need Congress to pass legislation. Now, the Senate can conduct a limited amount of ordinary business on trial days, so I think we'll probably see some confirmations, at least in the mornings. And then the afternoons will be devoted to both sides making their cases. And I think the Biden administration, they know, just like everybody else, that Donald Trump is not going to get convicted. So I think what they hope for is as fast a trial as possible. I can't imagine anybody's minds will be changed. Thanks very much for your time, John. Jason, great to talk to you as always. On the most recent episode of The Economist Asks, our interview show, we speak to Heather Cox Richardson, a professor of history and the author of the wildly popular Letters from an American newsletter. She uses the sweep of history since America's Civil War to provide a nuanced view of the state of American politics today. I'm not endorsing at all the idea that we're moving toward a civil war, just to the contrary. But one of the things that's important about Cindy McCain and what so many people are doing when they are coming out and endorsing the idea of a government that moves forward together is they are quite deliberately trying to reclaim the narrative from the radicals and take us back into, uh, as a friend of mine says, you know, we have uh, the Republican Party has sort of driven the car into the ditch. And what's happening now is a bunch of people are trying to yank it back onto the road. And from there, we can argue, but right now we got to get out of the ditch. Look for The Economist Asks in your local gallery of fine podcasts. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, Money Wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Young people in China today have no memory of the last time a youth-led movement rose up, more than three decades ago in Tiananmen Square. Late Sunday afternoon, military helicopters again flew over the square of heavenly peace, dropping leaflets calling on the protesters to leave. Yet, with fists clenched, the students pledged to stay on to the death. Nor is there any opportunity to learn about it. The Communist Party relentlessly scrubs any reference to the bloody suppression from the internet. In the interim, so much has changed. The communist regime under President Xi Jinping has an even firmer grip on civil society, even as young people are exposed to more of what's going on outside China's borders. It's those youth who will one day be in charge of perhaps the world's largest economy. And a look at one savvy group of them gives a strong hint of what's to come. 
China divides its generations by decades. Stephanie Studer writes about China for The Economist. Jolinghou in Chinese means post-90s generation. They're currently between the age of 20 and 30. And there are 188 million Jolinghou. And they're particularly interesting because they've grown up under the rule of Xi Jinping. Everybody born after 1991 who went to university was studying while Mr. Xi was in power. And so you could call them Generation Xi. And because they were born after the protests at Tiananmen Square in 1989, they have had an education more patriotic than at any time since Mao. And that is an effect of Xi Jinping's leadership. Well, this patriotic drive has certainly ramped up since he became president in 2013. They have been born into a prosperous China and have no recollection of a time when the country was poor. And the party likes to point out that it has presided over this age of prosperity. But it's hard to get that across to young people who have never known another China. So it's trying to find new ways to get them interested in the party. I went to Yan'an, which is where Mao Zedong and his followers camped out in caves and from where they planned their takeover of China. And this has now been turned into a very popular tourist site. It's also somewhere that school children and university students are taken to find out more about this Communist Party history. And a lot of them will arrive dressed up. They'll have replica army uniforms on and they'll be swinging satchels with Mao's face stamped on them. And a lot of them seem to be having a great time. There's often boisterous renditions of the East is Red praising Mao Zedong. And is that apparent loyalty to the Communist Party genuine? Well, they just simply don't have much of an emotional connection to the party, which is obviously something that the party's trying to change. But, you know, when you ask them about the red propaganda banners that are pasted all about town, they sort of roll their eyes at you, as if to say, yeah, they're around the place, but we don't take much notice. But that's not to say that they aren't also fiercely patriotic, and I think more so than probably any previous generation. And we've seen this in the last few years with how they rally online to support boycotts against foreign brands that they feel have insulted China. And there has also been a real coarsening of views about the Western world. The way that the West has dealt with COVID has played into that a lot. China is aghast that we don't seem to have got our act together, whereas China, with harsh measures, has been able to stop the virus in its tracks. But beyond their, their political outlook, how does this generation deal with the sort of social issues that are, that are prevalent in China that we've spoken about a lot on the show? Well, one interesting thing to note is that although they may be becoming a lot more patriotic, they also stand up for social causes in a way that they have never done before. In particular, feminism, environmental issues, LGBT rights. These are issues that they f- have been very vocal about in the past few years. And in some ways, they have been allowed a space in which to air concerns and champion these causes. 
So that makes them rather more similar to young people uh, anywhere in the world. I went to visit an LGBT NGO in Chengdu, which has become a bit of a haven for the LGBT community in China, where homosexuality is still very much taboo. The night I went, I sat in on a meeting of their volunteers who were almost all Jioling Ho. I wanted to ask you this because I feel like a lot of other people often say what they think about the Jioling Ho, but I want to hear from the Jioling Ho what you think you are. <laughs> and I asked them what one word they would use to describe themselves, and I got a lot of different answers. Hope. There was hopeful... Diversity. Diverse, tolerant, creative, pressured. But these are also words that young people anywhere in the world might use to describe themselves too. And when it comes to those issues and, and those taboos, how is this generation able to make noises about them? It is becoming a lot harder in many ways. I mean, in the early 2010s, you would have feminists going out into the street with placards attracting a lot of attention to themselves. There has been a severe clampdown on that form of activism since Xi Jinping came to power. And that has meant that now the space allowed to them, it has shrunk, but it's also sort of grown in different ways because they find online communities. Now, of course, there is a lot of censorship online, but they are allowed to champion some of these causes in ways that don't seem to be a threat to the party, almost as a sort of safety valve. So it sounds like in in terms of young people being any kind of political threat, that things are kind of going just as Mr. Xi and the party would want them to be going. It does. And so the big question becomes, could they become a political challenge, as so many young people around the world have been? And as young people in China have been. None of the young people I spoke to are interested in challenging the legitimacy of the Communist Party. And in many ways, they feel that they have a lot to thank the party for. In 1989, there was a ragbag of grievances that took young people to Tiananmen Square. One of them was inflation that was spiralling out of control. Since then, China has enjoyed this phenomenal long economic boom. The big question is now, as growth slows... Can that tacit understanding between the party and its people, which was essentially after Tiananmen, we will give you prosperity as long as you don't ask for political rights. You know, is that now looking shakier? Thanks very much for joining us, Stephanie. Nice speaking to you, Jason. Ah, looks like he's online. The little green light is on. Hey, Philip, are you there? Do you have time for a chat? I'll just wait. It's probably not news to you that the pandemic has upended the way we work and made everything a bit more isolated. But it's a feeling that predates the pandemic and our newfound obsession with instant messaging services like Slack. Ah, here he is. There's been a quiet pandemic developing while most people's attention has been on COVID-19 and its loneliness. Philip Coggan writes Bartleby, The Economist's column on work and management. 
for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, the signs are that people have been getting more and more lonely. And it's not just at home, it's also uh, seeing it at work. And the lockdown has only exacerbated that problem. And so what's at the root of this epidemic of loneliness? So the figures show that globally, two in five office workers feel lonely in work, and that's three in five in Britain. And then at work, we tend to communicate more with people and by email. We tend to people wear headphones when they're in the office. Back when we were in offices, we tend to move into this sort of isolated silo. And of course, the rise of the gig economy means that many people, even before the pandemic, were working on their own, being sent out to do jobs. So not returning to the sort of camaraderie of the factory floor or the warehouse and spend the entire day flitting from place to place, never having more than a sort of cursory conversation with anybody. And work in the old days, it was an important source of friendship and comradeship. But the suggestion here is that even before lockdowns and working from home in one's pajamas and the like, that that things were getting lonelier at work as well. Yes. Um, Open plan offices, which were designed to encourage cooperation, haven't really worked. The studies seem to show that in an open plan office, uh, you communicate more uh, via email than you do via chatting to people relative to a traditional office. And I think the reason for that is that everybody is surrounded by others who can hear and see everything they do. And if you want to have a private conversation, you don't want to do it in front of 10 other people. Uh, so you'll send them an email. And I think the, the the feeling of being watched and constantly observed is also quite isolating. And that's what makes people retreat into to the headphones. And the other great idea, the sort of co-working spaces, which was introduced like the WeWork, where you joined up in a collective office, that only creates quite short-term tenants in the offices. And it's a bit like if you move into the neighbourhood and you're only going to stay two or three months, you don't bother to get to know your neighbours. So that also wasn't that successful in creating camaraderie and didn't reduce the loneliness problem. And in, in pursuing the, this analogy of a, of a pandemic of, of loneliness, it must have actual health effects. Yes, it does. Um, studies show that people who are lonely have an increased risk of, of heart disease, of stroke and of dementia. And those who said they were lonely in a survey, five years later, they were more likely to have suffered from depression than people who didn't say they were lonely. And it's extremely difficult to combat because the sort of technological advances that we, you know, we're using at the moment to record this um, podcast have been steadily driving people apart as well. So I don't think that the loneliness uh, pandemic is going to uh, reduce anytime soon. I mean, how could it? Are there any prescriptions that, that counter all of these forces? Yes, I don't think the Zoom drink is going to be something that's going to survive. But what managers and, you know, supportive colleagues should be doing is probably calling people and seeing they're all right and just having the kind of casual chat you might have in the office. That would be more helpful, I think, than a sort of formal, forced interaction. Um, There will be a phase when we return to work and everybody wants to go to a party and, you know, gather in groups. But then after that sort of exhilaration has faded, I think some of these long-term trends might resume. Philip, thank you very much for your time. And and if I may say so, I, I miss you. I miss you too, Jason. I can't wait to see you again.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, Money Wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.